0: On this episode, I speak with Jim Paplava. Jim is a seasoned asset manager and financial professional who has been interviewed by The Wall Street Journal, ABC News Nightline, The Wall Street Transcript, The Huffington Post, and he even was in a documentary film called The End of the Road, How Money Became Worthless. Jim and I speak about the government shutdown, where he sees our economy heading, cryptocurrency, inflation, and how rents will affect the value of homes. Listen close as Jim shares his financial wisdom and insight as it relates to million-dollar mortgages.
1: Welcome to the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience Podcast. Listen in as CEO John Maddox of Fund Loans reveals tips, secrets, and origination ideas to fill your pipeline with million-dollar opportunities.
0: All right, Jim, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, John. So uh, you have... uh, a podcast yourself, right? And uh, you talk about the finances and economies and, and, uh, and things like that. Tell us a little bit about what your
1: uh, area of specialty is. Our area of specialty, we have two companies. We have our own broker dealer, and then we have an RIA that manages money. And uh, we call ourselves financial sense wealth management because we do total financial planning. In addition to managing money, we take care of things like putting together a plan, looking at taxes, estate planning, funding college, weddings, bar mitzvahs, etc. And so um, that's the basic company. Uh, I was an RIA for a long time. And then in 1995, I basically started my own broker-dealer. And the reason I did that is we were doing stuff that was kind of out of the box. The industry was going to what I call package products, mutual funds, and it's now morphed into... ETFs. We were actually picking stocks. We were doing individual bonds. Mm-hmm. And most brokerage firms don't want their guys doing that. You know, they, they want you in a set area. Stick with this. It's easy to manage when you have thousands of brokers. Right. So we started our own broker dealer. And uh, I used to do local radio, did television for a while. And then one day, the guy that my studio engineer, he said, you got a website. Why don't we just put this thing on? On your website. I thought, how do we do that? And (laughs) he said, well, I'll just record it. And we loaded it up to uh, the website. So that's sort of where we started. Mm -hmm. You know, people were listening to my show on their computers or they were burning it to a CD, Mm -hmm. listening to it in their car. And then, of course, when the iPod came out, you know, we just quickly moved over to the podcast side. That's great. So we do a number of programs. We do uh, Lifetime Income, which is all on retirement planning. It's a subject program on Mondays. Mm-hmm. Tuesday, I interview somebody. Like this weekend, I'm going to interview the head of Social Security. Wow! And so we'll talk about you know what are the best Social Security moves. And we also talk about health. Uh, I've I've talked to some of the best doctors in the country, um, and so we cover issues of health because if you're retired and you have all this money, but your health. Uh It's no good. You you don't have time to enjoy it. And then what we do is we have another program where it's called Insider. We interview some of the top minds on Wall Street, and they're in-depth interviews. That's a subscription. And then the weekend show is two hours long. The first hour, we cover the markets. I usually have a Wall Street technician, some of the, the great ones. And then we also cover markets from currencies to interest rates to commodities. That's the first hour. And then the second hour, I call this my big picture, is it's kind of taking a view of what's going on at the 40,000-foot level. Mm-hmm. What does this mean? What, what's going to happen next? And kind of sort of try to look out in the future right. the, the way things will unfold. So that's, in a nutshell, That's great. idea. Things are going well? Things are going well. Right now, we're very defensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're probably going to be defensive uh, for a while, we think well, there's another downturn in the market coming in the next month. Okay. And then uh, then we'll get what I call the last hurrah, one more big upswing in the market. Yeah. Because we, we're we looking at a possible recession next year. Okay. In election year. In an election year. The only thing that could prevent that, because we always ask in the back of mind, okay, this is what the, the numbers are telling us. This is the direction. Then we always kind of stand back and say... What could change that? So, mm-hmm. the president wants to get reelected, right? And Democrats want to get reelected. Sure. So, let's say they can come up with some compromise on infrastructure. So, they pass a one trillion, one and a half trillion dollar infrastructure spending bill. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be another stimulus, just like the tax bill right. was a stimulus, because the 300 billion in spending that was passed in January of last year, that money runs out by September of this year. Yeah. So wow. that that's coming, taking time bomb, kind of. Yeah. So, you know, um, if you want to get reelected, any president knows, and this, what what kind of strikes us about President Trump, he's the first president since George H. Bush that began his office with the Fed rate raising cycle Instead of a Fed lowering cycle, Obama began, Fed was lowering interest rates. Right. George W. lowering interest rates. Clinton. The last one where you raised interest rates and, and led to a recession was George H. Bush. That mm-hmm. started raising interest rates. We had a recession in 91. He mm-hmm. lost the election.
0: Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on. Speaking of that, what do you think of this shutdown that's happening?
1: It's the longest one in history, And right? Well, it, it's the longest one in history, and it's interesting, John. On the day you and I are talking, the president's budget uh, chief came out and said we could get a negative print <laughs> in the first quarter for GDP, because every week that this goes on, it costs the economy one-tenth of one percent. So it's costing $2.5 billion a week, the more that's going on. Jeez. And, you know, it looks like both sides are recalcitrant and they don't look like they're backing down. No. The president wants this wall, they're not they don't want to give it to him, so it's kinda of like mm-hmm. they're showdown. Locked, The horns are locked, showdown. At yeah. The, yeah, in Washington Gulch. So <laughs> so What has Trump done in the past when it when he
0: gets his back against the wall like this? Is there like history to show us? Anything like that or I mean he's
1: he's he's a shrewd negotiator. He likes to make deals, but yeah, he he's likes also to make, shrewd, and yeah, and he's he he can always play around you and get to that point. So yeah. you know, I'm optimistic that uh, we see th- three main risks this year. The first one at the top of the list is the Fed makes a policy mistake. We have a saying on our show that the Fed will keep raising interest rates until they break something. Break something in the economy or the market, sometimes both. Second risk is the trade war. And the third risk is political discord. We're seeing a good example of that right now with the Absolutely. shutdown. Absolutely. The Fed basically has gone on pause. I don't think they're going to stay there unless the numbers really get bad mm-hmm. because we could see uh, uh, an inflationary surge in the second half, which is going to be related to oil. But uh, the Fed that, right That's is, interesting you say that because th- we haven't seen much inflation in a long time. I mean, I don't, and how long has it been? Well, it's been well over a decade. I mean, yeah. you would have to go back to probably 2007 and 2008 when oil was heading to 150 a barrel. Right. Where, you know, we got CPI close to four or five. We're barely holding two yeah. at the present time. So we could see an uptick as we were last year as the oil prices went all the way up to 77 mm-hmm. and then um, back down in a short period of time. So the Fed's on pause. That's market positive, And the market has reacted to that. The second thing is the trade deal with China. You know, We're the buyer of last resort, right. and Trump knows that. So if you're negotiating with the guy that's selling you a lot of stuff and you're the buyer, you probably have a little bit more negotiating power. True. And China's economy is slowing down, they're trying to re-stimulate their economy. The best thing they can do is reach a deal with the president because that's hurting their exports. Right. So that could be resolved in the next couple of months. That would be positive. Mm-hmm. The big unknown to us right now is political discord. How far do you push this? Right. Uh, because this is not just 800,000 government employees now. These are a lot of small independent businesses, even big ones, that are contracting with the government mm-hmm. that simply aren't getting paid right now. Loans, SBA isn't making loans, right? So you know this is starting to impact the economy. Yeah, because there's
0: a lot. I mean, I, I have a friend that his whole job is—it's not like the movie uh, War Dogs, but he does other things like pencils and paper clips, and you know he, he contracts with the government. He he's not getting paid. So there's a lot of people beyond the eight hundred thousand that uh, that are totally being affected in their day-to-day job. How, what do you think that number is?
1: Oh, gosh. The Wall Street Journal has done just um, a number of stories that have come out in the last two weeks. Last week, they did a story about a company that was contracting with government. They're about to open up their second plant. They're going to hire 160 employees. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, pay stop. No cash flow. Right. So what do you tell a bunch of employees he just hired that are going to work in this new planter building. Yeah, that's that's they're going to have to furlough them. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, it's scary. So it's it's starting to hit. I would really be surprised if this continues into February and March that you're going to see some defections in the ranks of Democrats. There were a lot of. Democrats that got elected in red states that mm-hmm. are—they've already kind of hinted, hey, we don't like this. We—we—we we, we were sent here to do something, right? So he's going to need some defections, and I think he's going to try to work on that. You know, what can I give you? He's a deal maker. Mm-hmm. What's in it for you? Okay, yeah. here's what I'm willing to give you. Will you give me this? Right. But I—I I would suspect by the time we get to March, I mean, I'm in the financial business. We look at the futures market. A lot of the data that we look at on economic uh, information, we're not getting it right now. So It's kind of running blind then. Yeah. You know, I don't you know on. what the commercials are doing right now because I'm not getting reported on. Right.
0: And that, and that must affect your
1: analysts all around the country, right? I mean, yeah, you're is... looking at and you're just trying to gauge. We were talking to... Uh, Moody's Analytics last week, and they said, you know, this one tenth of a week. And I asked the guy, I said, "What is your best estimate of when this gets solved?" He said, "This go beyond the first quarter." <laughs> so
0: when Trump says it could last months, if not a year or, or more, I mean, it, it, you
1: think that's possible? I would say the closer we get to election year, I think you're going to see him tweet. And do something that changes that. Because a good example was uh, last June, he said he was walking away from the Iranian uh, deal. Mm-hmm. And he said uh, by August 6th, if they didn't come up with something 90 days after August 6th, sanctions were going to go in effect. Two million barrels of Iranian oil were going to be taken off the market. <laughs> so what does he do? He tweets, Russia, Saudi Arabia start pumping a whole bunch of oil. We get to November 5th, and he goes, oh, by the way, we're granting waivers. And so <laughs> the price of oil plunged. So I mean, he's he's pretty shrewd. Uh, you know, he, he says he's a business guy, but he's a shrewd politician too. True. No president wants to go into an election year with the economy in recession, right? The unemployment rate rising, the stock market falling. That's deadly. Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't do that. I don't think either.
0: Um, w- so our viewers, they, they're mortgage brokers. They, they're kind of entrepreneurs cause they run their own business. You know, you, you're an entrepreneur, you, you have your own business. Well, how'd you get your start? And what, how did you get kind of like a, how did you create your own success? Would you say,
1: gosh, you know, I just, I, I had this entrepreneurial bug that, you know, goes back to when I was in second grade and had my first paper route <laughs> you know, I had a lawn mowing business. I had a paper route. Uh, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, where neighborhood I lived in, they, you you basically watered your lawn through irrigation. Mm-hmm. So I had an irrigation business because nobody wanted to get up if your time to irrigate your lawn was at one o'clock in the morning. I was there one o'clock in the morning. I did How it. were you when, when you did that? Oh gosh, I was in grade school. Wow. So you were up that? Your parents let you stay up that late? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the only time I got to stay up late. And uh, so I started that, and then in. Um, um, high school i had various jobs my lawn mowing service and then um, when i got out of the army i i started valet parking and then i started my own valet parking business for a couple upper end restaurants so i put myself through school huh. so i you know i went on to graduate school i spent three years in corporate life and i just it just i don't know it just there was something about it, it was too confining mm-hmm. so i went off on my own and I always had to love the, the the markets, and started my own business. So I, I just one of those guys that always had these ideas of how to make money, mm-hmm. and I like being my own boss, setting my own hours, and. You know, having your own business, you know the hours you have to put in to make it go.
0: Yeah, it's so, so funny. You kind of trade a 40 hour work week
1: for a 60 hour work yeah. week. <laughs> but you're doing what you love, right? I mean, you're, yeah, doing... you're doing what you love. And then if you make a success of it, you reap the rewards of that. True. Versus corporate life. And so I I guess this goes all the way back to when I was a little kid. It was just the way it was. I just had this inkling to do things.
0: So you found a niche in something, right? Is, that, is your business kind of a niche or do you have a broad stroke, would you say?
1: No, I found a niche and I, I go back to follow the money. Mm-hmm. So when I got in the business, it's like, who had the money? Well, it was retirees. You know, Mm -hmm. they worked all their life. They accumulated a bucket of money. Right. Well, if you're going to be in our business, you want to manage money. You want to go where the money is. And so I developed uh, an expertise and I think it was 1981. I got my CFP, Mm -hmm. which is Certified Financial Planner, Mm -hmm. and uh, I began working in the retirement market. And so we're doing that and we've been doing that since 81 and then '80. I moved to California to start a business, and then in '95, I basically started my own broker-dealer. But um, the other market we're going to go after now is the 401k market, because the 401k market, what we're finding, especially now in, in uh, let's say, the boomers, the Gen Xers, mm-hmm. a lot of their wealth is in two areas. It's either in the equity in their home, or it's in their 401k plan. And so a lot of people put their 401k plans on automatic pilot, right? You know, you sign up with the company, you you pick your funds and just, you forget about it and you put kind the money of check out. it every now and then. So oh, yeah, I'm making money. Yeah. Making money or you, you know, you or don't want to look it. at it yeah. when the markets are going down. So we want to go after the 401k market because if we can help people better manage that during their working career, well, that's, they're going to have more money when they retire. Right. So it's, it's going to be sort of a niche. Hmm. Uh, outside of a retirement, I, I call it the pre-retirement market. Right. So, have
0: you always kind of looked for out-of-the-box type of things? I mean, our our loan products are all outside the box. Like we are we're non-institutional, we're non—you know—agency, and uh, a lot of our borrowers and our our—you know—viewers are, are people that you know look for. Kind of like follow the money, like you are saying. Like it's like, you know, if 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 the rates aren't low, then the the loans aren't falling out of the sky, and they're not low hanging fruit, but they're 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 loans that you got to go look for. You got to kind of get off your butt and like do something. You got to you got to learn some new products. You got to like find out where you know the need is for this stuff. Like what what kind of advice could you give to someone like in like in that in that position where like you know the 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 rates are different now, and so you got to kind of figure out a new new way to make money.
1: Yeah, it, we we like to th- think outside the well, we've always thought outside the box because you know we just like to do different things. Uh, I mean, we actually pick stocks, we actually uh, buy individual bonds because we can cherry pick and go in and find unique situations mm-hmm. that uh, can help the client. So, you know, if you're in a mortgage broker you're in the real estate market always start thinking of what other people aren't doing you that's know good advice and and find out what is a niche that isn't being served or nobody's paying attention to this niche of the market and then find that niche that's good and um, you know like when I started it was retirees mm-hmm
0: where do you think the uh, the market's going now as far as economy? I know we talked a little bit about that, but like where do you see do you see rates going up anymore? Do you see, you know, I think you said there's gonna be a potential recession in, in election year possibly. Um, but what do you think this next you said there's gonna be one more kind of boom and then you know, and then it kinda settles. What do you think that's gonna what's gonna drive that?
1: I think, you know, going back to my risk, okay, so if you take a look at what sort of started the sell-off at the end of the year, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you looked at the economic numbers last year and look at where the forecast were, we just got a $1.5 trillion tax stimulus. We got a $300 billion government spending stimulus. Mm -hmm. So if you look at 2018, the economy started heating up beginning right from the start of the year. We got up to a fourth growth rate. Corporate earnings were coming in at 25% per quarter. All of that, if you were to look at it from the surface, was looking really good. Mm -hmm. Economy was growing at the fastest rate in 10 years. Corporate profits are up 25% a quarter. I mean, if you cut tax rates from 35 to 21, you're going to get increased profits. But what happened is in September, the Fed has an FOMC meeting and says, oh, by the way, we are far from neutral, (laughs) which was an indication to the market one week after that the market started selling off because people started analyzing what did he say what was he meaning Mm -hmm. well we're going to be more aggressive and then uh, he had another meeting in december when they raised interest rates a quarter of a point in the press conference he said uh, qt which is quantitative tightening this is letting $50 billion a month roll over, he goes, that's an automatic pilot. We're going ahead with that. Market did not like that. So we went from an economy that was still growing, corporate earnings that were still coming in, to everybody started saying, oh my goodness, this is gonna start slowing the economy. The Fed's gonna do what it always does. And so we had the sell-off. So we ended up the year negative. So nobody, if you're looking at January 2018, nobody would have saw a negative year. So now we're at 2019. And the Fed is saying the overseas markets are going down. They're seeing the economic numbers from the ISM manufacturing service numbers go down. All of a sudden, Powell is kind of like I call it the open mouth committee. (laughs) They're out there talking like this. Mm -hmm. They're saying, oh, okay, we're going to relax. So this next upswing, if you get a Fed on pause, which the market likes, and let's say Trump negotiates a deal with china so the trade conflict goes away that would be a catalyst for an upward swing in market Mm -hmm. but another factor that's going to come in is the rise in oil we think oil prices are going up for a number of reasons number one they're overstated in terms of the inventory levels they've been low for a while yeah yeah it's not like they have a dipstick and it's a precise science and they Put it in the can. Okay, that's what the inventory is. But China, most people don't know, was buying half a million barrels of oil a day. Mm. So during the trade conflict, they, they backed off. So there's a half a million barrels that aren't going to China anymore. Mm-hmm. So they just indicated they're going to buy more soybeans. If they reach a agreement on trade, they start buying half a million barrels of oil or more oil from the U.S. Mm-hmm. And you've got Saudi Arabia and Russia. They're saying, we're not going to get full this time. We're, you know Saudi Arabia needs $80 a barrel. Yeah. The other thing is if you look at the shale uh, plays... The cheapest shale play is the Permian basin they need 51 dollars a barrel to break even and make money hmm. well you know already we're seeing capex expenditures mm-hmm. drop we're seeing the rig count drop and sooner or later there's a saying in the business the best price best cure for higher prices is higher prices the best hmm. cure for lower prices is lower prices so you could see in the back half of the year Um, Right now, the futures market, and we we don't have up-to-date figures as of the shutdown, but they're pricing in the next rate hike coming from the Fed would most likely be June. June. That's if things turn around, Mm -hmm. and I'm assuming also the government shutdown doesn't go that long. If the government shutdown goes that long, (laughs) who knows? Yeah, who knows? So let's say the Fed raises interest rates in June, oil starts to go up, and the futures market has the next probability, maybe December. But you could start to see rates back up again. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem, John, now is we have a lot more leverage out there. Uh, and the area, that I'm, debt, yeah. the area I'm most concerned about is the corporate debt market. Mm-hmm. And it's up 60%. And the characteristic of it, if you take a look at triple uh, B-rated bonds, mm-hmm. seven hundred and fifty billion in two thousand and ten. Today, two point seven trillion. Jeez. So, you've got two thirds of the corporate bond market is junk, or triple B-rated, just one notch above junk. What would cause that to just collapse? It would be a, a recession, a weakening economy, because what happens in a weakening economy? Companies' sales go down, mm-hmm. their profits go down, their interest coverage ratios, and what does uh, you know the rating industry do? You know, you look at a company that was triple B-rated in good times, in mm-hmm. bad times when things are shrinking, they get downgraded, right? And if they get downgraded, that could cause a shockwave, because you've got literally hundreds of billions of dollars of mutual funds and etfs that are investment grade meaning their mandate says you cannot own anything that's low quality which would be double b so if a triple b rated bond gets downgraded to double b you're mandated you are forced to sell that wow and so if Everybody owns the same stuff. You know, it's like the, uh, you and I are the owners of the market. Okay, mm-hmm. we have to sell. I can't sell to you because you buyers you're... shrink, then the amount of... Yeah, the demand for that stuff is gone, right? Yeah, the demand shrinks, liquidity disappears, and there's only one thing that brings liquidity back in the market is price. Right. So the price drive is driven down far enough that somebody will look at that and say, hey, that's distressed debt. I'll, you know, there's been fortunes. Uh, Howard Marks. Well, it kind of reminds me of what happened in the housing market when there was
0: way too many houses built, right? And there was... The, the glut of homes that were on the market and then the prices dropped and then all of a sudden the big hedge funds like Blackstone, Blackrock, they all went and bought all these properties and they stole them. They got them for, you know, pennies on the dollar and they bought the, the uh, distressed debt, the dr- distressed mortgages and they just cleaned up and they held on to it and now they still own it. A lot of these hedge funds still own a lot of these these houses and they're making a killing because rent is so high. Yeah. So how do you think this kind of all compares to possibly,
1: you know, the housing market and like where we are on where we are at today in the housing market? I think in this next downturn, you're going to have a similar opportunity. And and this happened also in 1991. When uh, we were in a recession, the S yep. and L crisis, and I'm trying to think of the government agency that was set up to liquidate all these mm-hmm. uh, loans. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a couple guys here that became billionaires in California by buying all that these distress, those distressed mortgages. So. Right next downturn, you're going to have an opportunity to buy um, not only distressed debt, so a lot of this double B debt, Mm -hmm. because what happens if the economy turns around, the double B gets upgraded. Right. So you'll be buying angel bonds. They'll get upgraded, but you'll be buying them for 60, 70 cents on the dollar Mm -hmm. and economy turns around. You know, there's going to be a lot of fortunes made.
0: Yeah, because it doesn't mean that the businesses are going to go under necessarily. It just means that the, the debt itself is now less valuable. Is that right? or?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's like there is there is some greater risk there. Obviously, a double B uh, rated bond isn't as safe as something that's rated A. You don't worry about it. So, But in a, in a downturn, it gets downgraded double B, B depending on the nature of the business. But then when things turn around and you get the next reinflation. We see the next cycle being as uh, inflationary, mm-hmm. which also implies higher interest rates. Right. So, Because the next time they're just gonna come in with massive fiscal stimulus and the Fed's gonna monetize it because there will be no choice. I'll throw out something that, uh, if you look at it, it's kind of scary, but if you look at what they might do, then it isn't. By 2020, interest on the debt will equal more than what we spend on medicaid <laughs> by 2023 interest on talking the- us debt right? us debt yeah by 2023 it'll exceed what we spend on the entire defense budget jeez by 2025 interest on the debt will exceed all discretionary government spending outside of social security medicare and medicaid wow so what do you do if you're a politician or you're president in 2025 between Entitlements and interest on the debt. There's no money to run the government, pay the FBI, the Supreme Court. What you do is you spend money and the Fed just comes in and monetizes it. Mm -hmm. Kind of what we saw them do with QE and what we saw the European Central Bank do. Wow. And so I I see an inflationary cycle uh, going up in the... um, Do you uh, think that'll keep rates, interest rates down
0: somewhat? I mean, if if the interest rates go up even just a little bit more, the amount that we're paying on that debt is just continually... Rising, right? I mean, so the,
1: there's got to be some pressure to keep those, those rates low, right? And that, that will be the Federal Reserve, but the market gradually we see interest rates rising. There's a, a gentleman in our business who uh, we, we sort of refer to him now as the current bond king. <laughs> and he's analyzing this perspective is typically when you go on a recession or you see economic weakness as we did in the month of December. What happened last year is sort of a prelude to what may happen in the future. If you look at the downturn that came in February last year. The month of January, stimulus, the spending bill, every single week the market's going up hitting new records. In one week in December, we gave everything back in 6 days. Yep. And what did not happen in typical market downturns, the treasury market did not respond. In other words, you lost money if you were in treasury bonds mm-hmm. as you did in stocks. Fast forward to October, the market starts to roll over, Fed comments, stock market goes down in the month of October, bonds go down in the month of October. So you're losing money in every asset class, commodities, bonds, stocks. It started to flip in November as people started saying, oh, wait a minute, growth maybe be slowing down. And all of a sudden the treasury market, which was 10 year note was at three and a quarter, started to go below 3%. Hmm. So the... Uh, so that was a little bit uh, more of what I call the safety trade. It flipped back to that safety trade. But in February, in October, it wasn't. Hmm. It wasn't working then. So the interesting thing that comes in is if we go in another recession, we're running trillion dollar deficits with 3% economic growth. What is that deficit look like when you get into a recession? Right, You could get back up to 1.6, 1.7. Then you also have the Fed pulling out $600 billion out of the market. So you have three big buyers of federal debt. You've got the Fed, you've got China, and you got the Bank of Japan. Japan's pulling back, China's not buying, and the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet. (laughs) What do you do when you start getting to $1.6, $1.8 trillion of deficit, where you're flooding the market with a lot of debt? In a recession, maybe this time around, and this is just out of the box, Mm -hmm. stuff right now, but maybe this time around, rates start to rise because there's an enormous amount of debt that's coming into the market. Who's the buyer? Very interesting. Yeah.
0: It's the trillion-dollar question.
1: The trillion-dollar question. (laughs) Or
0: two-trillion-dollar question. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What Do you you think... um, you know a lot, there's a lot of talk not as much today but like months and so, months or so ago about cryptocurrency and bitcoin and how that was up and then it crashed do you do you uh, know much about that do you see that um being anything having you know any impact on this
1: uh, it, it's not you know if you look at money it's got to be a stable source of value well, it's got to be fungible i mean you, you hear merchants taking bitcoin but how would you like to have given a merchant a bitcoin at 19 thousand and it's worth 3600 today <laughs> I just don't think that's going to work how much money was pulled out of the market by that crash there's there a good number of billions right that was I mean billions of dollars came out of the market and uh, interesting that uh, i I'm a believer in gold and I believe <laughs> gold is about ready to to have its next leg up, mm-hmm. and the thing with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and especially with younger people, it was taking money out of the gold market hmm. because you know the millennials, their cell phones, technology that just fit right in. All I don't right. trust the markets, yeah, and so it, it did defer and take money away from what I, what is typically a safe haven in times of turmoil and turbulence, which is the gold market. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I see gold resuming that value because cryptocurrencies how can you buy some for 19,000 and it drops to 3600 bucks yeah that
0: that is not uh, there's a lot of people blowing money
1: partying and then next day it was like it crashed now so. one of our guys <clears throat> who works for us uh, got onto it early thank goodness he got out yeah he, he got a hawaii vacation out of it but that's <laughs> uh, he hasn't gone back since
0: so, um, you like gold. What about, um, you know, rents are really high right now. So there's a lot of people renting still and there's <clears throat> rents. Uh, price of, of, uh, rent is, is high for residential real estate. Um, how do you think that will affect the value or the price of homes?
1: You know, when you get into an economic uh, economic downturn, you're already seeing it right now reflected where even some of the builders are throwing in the same thing they did in 2008. They're throwing in, you know, more extras to get in the house. They're happening on the. So, you know, you're going to see those kind of things. But the one thing we didn't see this time around, John, is that we didn't see oversupply. We didn't see ninja loans, no doc loans, none of the crazy stuff. Still tough to get a loan. Yeah. Yeah. Still tough to get a loan. And builders were very circumspect on building. You know, mm-hmm. I can remember in in the housing boom where builders would open up, you know, phase one, two or three building spec homes. All at uh, once, yeah. Uh, all at once. They they're not, They not. didn't do that this time. You know, we open up phase one when we got everything sold. We'll open up phase two. Right. So they're, um, you know, I think prices will weaken. But are they going to collapse? I, I just never saw real estate getting into a bubble. The other thing you had which was a result of what happened the last time. You know, I have uh, home builders are telling me that, uh, custom guys, that it's hard to get. I mean, I built a home and it took six months longer because my builder couldn't get, you know, the different subs, they were just over There's a labor, a lack of good labor in the market. Yeah, so not only did it take longer to go through the inspections, but, you know, trying to get people uh, to work on the house, uh, you know, spread thin. Right.
0: So do you think, you know, kind of what I've thought is there's going to be a little bit of a softening that you might be like a 2001 type of softening, you know, and then it's then it might continue to stay stable and go up again. I mean, what do you think?
1: I think it'll, it'll soften, mm-hmm. stabilize and then rise again. But I think it's going to be uh, the next upswing, I think, uh, is going to be more regional. It's going to be I mean, you, you take a look at this tax law. If you live in California, it's one of the most expensive places to live. Yeah. What did you just lose? You can't deduct your state taxes. You can't deduct your property taxes anymore. Um, So all of these things are important. Plus, they just reduced the the mortgage deduction down to $750,000 versus Mm -hmm. before it was a million plus a hundred. So I think you're going to see what I call the intermigration. You're going to see people from the East Coast and the West Coast. And they're going to be moving in,
0: hmm. Because you're there's seeing a lot of people companies. moving to Texas. There's a lot of people moving to Arizona, Nevada. Lot, Nevada. There's a lot of people moving to Colorado. I know a lot of people that have moved there from California, um, and I'm sure it's on the other side too, right? New York. There's people moving and the Down East Coast, the Florida,
1: and right. North Carolina, and places like that. And I'm, you know, I would say a th- maybe a little over 25 percent of our clients here in California they are retiring, they're moving. <laughs> Because I can sell the big house here mm-hmm. that's worth over a million. and Pay you know, cash for another house and then yeah. have extra. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our, our favorite joke is a definition of a California millionaire is a homeowner. So, but, <laughs> you know, they can sell the house here, million dollars plus. I had, uh, we had a client, San Francisco, a mm-hmm. uh, small town home, sold it for like $1. 1.4, $1. 1.5 million. Oh, Moves to Reno. Mm-hmm pays cash for a house with a backyard this time <laughs> for 600 something thousand dollars. Right. And she's got a free and clear home and a backyard. And then goes on vacation to to California whenever she wants. Yeah, she can just go to, yeah, vacation. So we're seeing a lot of that where people are cashing out of the more expensive states and we're seeing it also on the East Coast too. Yeah. New Jersey, New York, places like that that are very expensive on in, in on the east coast, they go down to Florida. It's cheaper down there. Right. It there's no taxes. And the cost of living here we 're seeing people go to Nevada, Arizona, and Texas, right some going to Washington not not as much but and it 's not just I would say it's not just the, the
0: elderly right it's also there's some there's a lot of job growth in these other states and so there's there's people that are younger work uh, moving to these other states too is that is that accurate yeah. or is it mostly
1: the um, the boomers or no it, it, it's all kinds I went to um, Reno in the month of August, and just checking the place out. Mm-hmm. Toll Brothers has 20 projects they have online. They're going to bring, I forget, they own something like 15, 20,000 acres. I mean, wow. they're selling everything that they could have.
0: Well, yeah, Amazon's there, Tesla's there. Who else is?
1: Uh, Google just bought 1,300 acres next to Tesla. Amazon's got two fulfillment centers for squares there. So, you know, they need jobs. They need people to live there. Yeah. And, um, you know, they they can't build them fast enough. Right. Because for those of us who live in California, you go to Reno and you go, oh, my God, this looks cheap. Yeah. Yeah, anything looks cheap yeah. <laughs> compared to California. And so I, I see places like Texas. I see Nevada. I see Arizona where the cost of living is cheaper. Mm-hmm. The weather's not as good. Right. But, you know, the money you save, you can vacation here. Yeah, so true. Yeah, so I, I see it more of a regional play in the next upcycle. Mm-hmm. Because uh, are, do you really want to buy a, a medium-price home in San Francisco for $1.3 million? Yeah. And we're not talking McMansions there.
0: No. no. Yeah, it's amazing what you get for 1.3 now. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not
1: amazing, I should say. It's underwhelming. <laughs> yeah, I was just... Uh, the, I, I'm trying to think of the name of the site. It's called Trending. And they were talking about Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. And he has uh, something like a... 5,600 or 6,000 square foot house, $10 million Jeez. in this neighborhood. And you know, it wasn't a mansion. No. Yeah. But that's San
0: Francisco. It's so it's so true. It's, there's a huge demand with all the fires too, with all the fires in the, up there and in, in the north of there and in the in the uh, in the Bay Area, Santa Rosa. There was tons of fires, tons of people, thousands of homes were burned. So I mean, the fact that people were displaced and then that didn't help the. I mean, that helped
1: the housing market, but it didn't help you know with the, the supply problem we had. Yeah, I mean, you have to think if you had housing insurance, and you get reimbursed. Do you want to buy another house in California, or do you want to go someplace where that money buys you much more? True, very true.
0: So um, we talked about the government, we talked about economy. What uh, a little bit about rates. Do you think you know? Would you advise someone to get a fixed rate or an ARM rate, or is there is there a difference in, in your mind like that, or is it some circumstantial? Or
1: you know, I, I tell people there's two things. If you see yourself. Um, only staying in that house five years, ten years. Right. Then I would I would get sort of like an adjustable, like let's say a, a five, seven, or ten year. Sure. With a fixed rate. Right. That way you get a lower rate. It's fixed. And what you don't want to do is what happened to all those people that bought those special loans in 2007 and 2008 when they got adjusted mm-hmm. upward. You know, basically mm-hmm. they couldn't afford to keep... And stay where they are so you got to take a look at your budget and take a look at you know answer number one how long do i realistically think i'm going to stay here if right. you're planning a big family and it's a small house well you're <laughs> probably not going to stay there long true secondly if you're you only see yourself maybe staying in the area five to seven ten years then you get a loan in that range right makes but sense i i prefer fixed because like i said the big unknown is what's going to happen when the government starts to run out of money, the Fed starts to print money, and what's going to happen in the next upcycle. And that is sort of a big unknown right now.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I always look at these charts of, like, housing over the last 100 years, and you see, you know, you always see the little crashes or the little dips, but then you, you see, you know, even a 5 year old could tell you well yeah housing's always go you know housing always goes up so i mean i think a lot of that has to do with inflation over years right i mean and so if if we think about that and we think, well, at some point, Fed's going to have to print a ton of money again. There's going to be inflation. You know, the dollar's going to weaken at some point. You know, then then it just makes sense that house prices have to go up at some point. So if you did get a 30-year fix, kept the house, even if you were going to move, maybe rented it out because rents are still staying high, that might be a smart economic move for somebody.
1: Right now, I, I see in the next decade interest rates rising. Yeah. So if you're a real estate investor, uh, locking in a rate Mm -hmm. uh, so you know what your cash flow is going to be. Right. Or if you're a homeowner, just locking in a rate for how long you think you're going to be in that house. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're 55 and you're thinking of buying a house and you're thinking, well, when I turn 65, 66, am I really going to stay in this house when I retire? Well, maybe you only want a 10-year mortgage. Yeah, makes sense
0: so last question I like to ask is uh, you know you've been an entrepreneur you've had ups and downs every uh, every successful person's had failures in their life what would you say your favorite failure was throughout the years
1: not holding to my conviction um, in uh, this was a painful lesson in 93 and 94 uh, we were going through at that time they called Hillary care and what happened is when that was going in, uh, when they were talking about legislating it, a lot of the drug stocks um, were just hammered. I mean, they were down 20%, 30 40%. So, you know, I went in there and I was picking up companies like Merck, Lilly, <laughs> Pfizer, and, and getting dividends of four and a half, five 5%. And it almost got passed. So after I buy it, I'm picking them up cheap. The dividend yields are good. And then all of a sudden, it looks like, oh, my goodness, this could get passed. And the markets react to it. So, you know, I lose another 20%. (laughs) And uh, I'm hearing, I'm reading, you know, the media picks up on the current stuff. Oh, my God, this this is going to get passed. This is going to be doomed for the the drug companies. And then my client's putting pressure on me. And I sold them. (laughs) And then I had a client, a rather large client, he came in. And he's, he, he pulled his account for me. Huh. He said, I want to tell you why I'm leaving. And I said, um, you know, I've done yeah. good by you. He said, you bought good stocks and I was with you. I understood your rationale, but you didn't hold your ground. Hmm. And so I lost a very large client and it taught me a lesson because what happened? They went back up and they were up several hundred percent. Right. So not holding... And standing by your conviction because we always tend to think outside the box. Sure. I mean, if you're a value investor, for number one, you're not going to find value if something isn't going wrong with the company. Right. Yeah, because otherwise you're you're paying prices like Amazon. Sure. So you you've got to think outside the box because that's how you're going to get them cheap. And but you have to hold on to your convictions and you got to say, uh, but but the same token, you have to know okay. What would make my assumptions wrong, too? Because a lot of times, uh, that's another mistake. Sometimes when you are wrong, you you don't want to recognize it. (laughs) It, Your your ego comes in and there's something about, I don't want to admit I was wrong. So holding on to your convictions, Mm -hmm. I think, was a real valuable lesson for me.
0: That's great to learn. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's, I know it's hard time, hard to learn lessons sometimes like that, but they sure
1: pay off when you learn and you change, right? And you stick with your convictions and going forward. Yeah, there's a guy by the name of Ray Dalio who runs Bridgewater. It's the largest, most successful hedge fund in the world. And he has five goals, and one of them was set goals. Number two, when you make a mistake, learn why that was a mistake. Right. Number three learn how to correct it. Number four, don't repeat it. <laughs> That's good. So, yeah. So those were some early on lessons that, uh, had an impact on me. That's good stuff. Well,
0: Jim, thank you for coming on the show. Well,
1: it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, John.